The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift, Shift, Bloom. You know, I was a physician. I was a Uh, I was in a high rank position in Europe, and then I came to the U.S. to become a housekeeper. But I didn't look at that as being, I mean, low. (laughs) I look at that as being uh, very grateful, you know, starting as housekeeper. And then because I knew that I wouldn't stay a housekeeper all of my life, It, it was a life lesson for me. Due to the nature of the information she is about to share, today's guest has asked to remain anonymous. For the purposes of this interview, we will call her Leonie. While she is altering some of the identifying details of her life, her story is true. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today goes by the name Leonie, African-born, a licensed gynecologist, Leonie has fled the same abusive marriage twice in order to protect her children and herself. Leaving Africa for Europe and Europe for the United States, she has also had to leave behind family, friends, ways of life, and her medical practice. I am so grateful for her bravery in choosing to talk to me today. Welcome, Leonie. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I love to sit across from you and, and get to see your smiling face. And I know you you grew up in Africa. What what do you most remember about your childhood? Um, growing up in Africa was, I would say, the best memories of my of my life. Because I had a lot of siblings and my parents have always supported me. They wanted me to be very well educated, not only me, but all of my siblings. So I came from a very well educated family and I inherited that from my parents. So I came from a very um, Mm. big family and I really enjoyed, you know, growing up uh, Mm. in Africa. What drew you to medicine? So I, my mom is a nurse. She was a nurse because she is retired now. And uh, in Africa, you know, people will come to our house um, to get my mom, um, you know, to, to treat them because they don't have a lot of money to go to the hospital to get treated. So they will come to see my mom and ask her to treat them. So, and usually I will go with my mom to their houses and help her, um, you know, placing infusions or just doing injections or giving them pills or doing a consultation. And I really enjoyed doing that. So that's why growing up, I really wanted to be uh, a physician. From what age was she taking you along? Uh, I was 12, 12 years old. Wow. And did you ever have any um, worries? Were you ever thinking, oh, I don't like this? Yeah, I think I've never had, I was never afraid of that. I just wanted to help. That was higher than any fear that I could possibly have at a time. And that's what really drawn me to to helping people. The gender gap is closing in terms of women going to medical school in Africa, but I imagine when you went, was there still a pretty big disparity in how many women were going to medical school versus how many men were going? 
when I was going to medical school at that time, the gap was kind of getting close a little bit. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, we were, I would say 40 versus 60. Yeah. Oh, that's right. okay. So, mm-hmm. so, so pretty, pretty closed was the gap at that point. Yes. Um, when you went into medical school, were you already thinking about gynecology and obstetrics? I didn't choose to be a gynecologist at first because I really enjoyed a lot of specialties, ENT, GI, uh, dermatology. And it's not, it's only when I got to uh, fifth grade that I really decided, okay, I think I'm going to go you know, to gynecology. I'm going to do um, OBGYN. Was there an event or a determining factor or something that you saw in the OBGYN rotation that, that led you to make that? Obviously, it was a difficult choice. You had options. You had other interests. What was it that sealed the deal? Yeah, so actually, it was a regional hospital setting, and I went there during my rotation, and it was really tough. Um, I worked in very difficult you know, very challenging situations there. And I decided, oh, I really need to go back to help them. Do you have a preference or did you discover a preference for bringing babies into the world or being helping women through the gynecological exam? What, what Was there a preference there? Yes. Actually, my preference was, uh, I mean, obstetric sites, you know, bringing babies to, mm-hmm. to the world. I can't imagine. Must be amazing. It was, yeah, the best time of my life, really. When and how did you meet the man who became your husband? Uh, So I met my ex-husband in in Africa back there. Actually, I was was doing my residency and I was supposed to, to give a presentation in in obstetrics and I needed to gather a lot of information and I couldn't find that on, you know, on the books that I, I, I had at that time. And at that time, you know, uh, inter- internet was just started and there was a, a conference uh, on internet. So I went to that conference and I met my uh, ex-husband there. Did you start to date immediately? Was it exciting? Yeah, it was exciting. I didn't start right away because I didn't have a lot of time, you know, with my residency time. So it took time, you know, to get to know each other. And also in Africa, uh, depending on the countries, you know, it's very uh, conservative. So you cannot live uh, together if you are not married. How long did you date before you got married? Uh, we dated for a year. What was the early part of the marriage like? The early part of the marriage was, it was fun. It was, you know, because we we were trying to understand each other and um, to live together because we hadn't lived together before. Yeah. So it was, it was okay in the beginning of the marriage. And I would say a few months, I mean, into the marriage, it was, it was, it was okay. Had you completed your medical studies and were you working in the field at that time? Yeah. So when I met my ex-husband, I was working as OBGYN in the same hospital where I got my, my medical degree from, where I also uh, did my, my residency. How long was it before you had, uh, had children? It was a year after I got married that I got my, yeah, my first child. Wow. Boy or girl? A girl. Do you remember that as a happy time? Uh, it was, the, yeah, that was a year after the marriage. So that was a happy time. And were you able to work and be a mom? Were you juggling both of those things? It, it wasn't easy uh, to do both at the same time. So I stopped working for a few months, you know, in order to, to take care of my, my daughter. And then after that, I went back to, to work. When did things start to go wrong in your marriage? Yeah. So when I got married, 
I wanted to go to Europe to study more. So I went there uh, with my my two kids at a time because after my daughter, so I got my son. So I went with my children um, in Europe uh, to to continue my studies. And then, so my ex-husband will come to visit us. And I spent two years uh, in Europe. And then, so when we were, you know, separated because of, of the distance, so that makes things very um, difficult. Mm-hmm. And also uh, he had a lot of friends back there and um, they were started telling him that he wouldn't have let me go because I'm a woman. And if you are a woman, you have to stay in a household and obey your husband and be a good wife. So your ambition and desire to continue your education was a wedge do you think he would have come to those thoughts and feelings had he not been influenced by his friends, that kind of out, outside influence? I, maybe, maybe not. That's hard to know for sure. But I think um, the fact that he was, you know, influenced by his um, friends, that really played a, a huge part in, the, in our marriage. So you went for two years to Europe. Did you go back to Africa at that point? Yes. Yeah, so after uh, getting my degree in Europe, I went back to Africa. And then things started to change because he became very abusive at a time. And he became very jealous because he didn't want me to, to work. If you're able to share or you want to share... What was the nature of the abuse and was it towards you or towards your children as well? So the nature of the abuse was uh, towards me. He, he wanted me to, be, to stay home. So actually he told me that if I wanted to work, that was fine, but he had to choose you know, with what companies that I can work with or not. So if it was like well-known companies, he didn't want me to work with those companies because he didn't want me to be independent. Were you surprised by this? I was expecting that a little bit because I knew I knew his friends and uh, I knew what happened to one of my friends who was married to his best friends. So I knew what I should have expected. Is this a prevailing cultural norm in Africa, in your country, that the expectation is a woman will not work once she has children, that she will defer to her husband's wishes, that she will not overshadow her husband professionally? Is, is this sort of normal culturally? Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, depending on really on the husband, because yes, it's for the husband to decide uh, and the wife should obey her husband. That's the norm. So it sounds like the abuse was quite psychological, manipulative. Did it ever become physical? It becomes physical. Yes, it becomes physical. In the beginning, it was verbal, emotional, and then he, yeah, it became physical. And when it became physical, I couldn't stand it anymore. Did you confide in anyone? Yes, I did. To my friends, family, and uh, I had an aunt. I have a lot of aunts, but I confided to one of my aunts and I told her what happened, that he abused me physically and uh, she just said, that's normal. You have to accept that. And I said, no, I won't. I won't accept that. That's not normal. He has to respect me as well as I have to respect him. But, you know, I'm not, I'm his wife. And to my point, we are equal. You know, I'm not inferior. 
to him because I'm his wife. So he has to respect me as well. And that's not okay with me. Do you just know this because of who you are? Or do you think you had female models of this sense of equality? Where does that come from? Uh, so my parents are very well educated. Uh, they are very open, uh, open-minded. So, yes. So seeing my parents, you know, the way that they always, they have always been, you know, so my model was really my parents, my mom and my dad. And uh, my dad has never, ever treated my mom like my husband treated me. I'm just curious while this is happening. I know you must have so many thoughts and you must be making so many plans. Do you have any, do you have a desire to push back or do you just have a desire to, to flee, to escape, to get out? Uh, so I had a desire to push back and that's what I did initially. So I um, decided to, you know, that I needed to get a divorce because I couldn't stay in that situation anymore. And that's what I did. How old were your children at this time? They were six and four. What propelled that decision? Was it not enough to have a divorce? What propelled the decision to leave the country with your kids? So at a time, my uh, ex-husband was very uh, powerful. He was very close to, to the president of the country. And he told me that I'm, I wouldn't see my children anymore, that he will take them and I will never get custody. And you believed him. So that's why. Yes. And, uh, and that was the truth. So I started the divorce procedure in Africa. And then I knew that I would have lost my children had I stayed there. So that's why I decided to, to leave the country. Did you have a support system? Did your family know your plans? Were they able to help you? No. No. Nobody. I didn't want to, to tell anybody because I was very afraid to, to not be able to leave. I knew if I had told somebody, maybe I, I wouldn't have been able to, to leave the country. Did you leave before the divorce was final? I left um, a week before the, the divorce was final because uh, in Africa, in that country, so the divorce takes only uh, two weeks in order to be finalized. Okay. So it's, it's very, very... Very fast. Quick. Okay. Yeah. Who was helping you on the outside? How did you set things up to be able to get to Europe with your two kids? Yeah, that was very difficult. And even today, I, when I think about it, I don't even know how I was able to, to, to escape because my, my ex-husband, he knew everybody. And it's, it was like a small village. So my fear was to even get to the airport and that maybe somebody might recognize me and call him. So I wasn't sure if I, I would be able to, to leave the country. But before leaving the country, I called uh, international, international lawyers in Europe uh, to explain to them my situation okay. and that I was about to leave the country uh, without, uh, with my children. And they told me that if I really want to leave the country, I have to come before getting, getting the, the final decision from the judge. So that was the advice you were given by attorneys to get out before yeah. the divorce was final. Yeah. Leone, as I'm listening to this and you are so poised and seemingly calm as you relate the facts back, as this is actually happening to you in real time and you're keeping these rather large secrets in a way, you have to keep everything to yourself to protect yourself and your kids. 
do you feel like some part of you is shifting or changing to adapt to this situation that you're in? Yes, I needed to adapt. I needed to adjust. And even when I decided to leave the country, it was a very tough decision because at a time I was still living with my ex-husband. We were going to court, but we were still living in the same house. So it wasn't easy to plan. Did you literally leave with the clothes on your back? Yes. I didn't take any bags, anything. I just took the most important with me, my children and my degrees, because I knew when I get to Europe, you know, I will have to find a job. And in in order to find a job, I will have to take my degrees with me. Wow. And you mean literally your physical, the physical copy of your, the proof of your education? Yes, Yes. absolutely. But I couldn't take anything else because he would have known, you know, if I would have to take even one bag, he would have known that I was planning to leave him. Do you remember the moment you got on the plane and the plane took off? Yeah, still today I remember that moment because there was only one plane at night leaving to go to Europe. And I couldn't take that plane because my ex-husband, he would have known. So I decided to take a plane during the day and to go to another African country in order to get to Europe. And what happened was that when we got onto the plane, so there was a a technical uh, issue with the plane. And I... (laughs) And I said, oh, no, that couldn't happen. That can happen right now because if they, they had to delay the, you know, the departure, so I wouldn't be able to leave the country ever. Oh. But I, we got very lucky. So that took only uh, one hour. And then they were able to fix the, the plane. Do you breathe a tiny sigh of relief at that point or not yet? Not yet, just a little bit, because I left the country. (laughs) So that was a big relief, but I was still in Africa and still yet to get to to Europe. You get to Europe. What's the first thing you do? So the first thing I did was to to call one of my siblings who lived there and uh, told her that, okay, I'm here with my kids. We came here. She was shocked because she didn't know what was going on. And then, yeah, it was the beginning of hell. What do you mean by that? So when I got there uh, in Europe, uh, I went to, to see a lawyer because I needed one. And then that lawyer told me that I needed to go uh, to the police to let them know that I left my husband, my ex-husband, that I left the country just to have a record okay. of that day. And they also, uh, he also told me that right after being to the police that I needed to call my ex-husband to let him know that I was in Europe. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What Do you do it? Yes. Okay. I did it because, you know, because I wanted to start a new procedure in France, you know, in order to get my children's custody back. And he told me, okay, that's, that's the way to go. And that's what I did. But I didn't call my ex-husband myself. I was with my sibling, my sister, and she's the one who called him, but I was with her in the car. What was his response? He said, yeah, he said that, you know that I'm very powerful. I'm going to destroy your life. As you're hearing these words, or as you hear yourself say these words now, what are you thinking he has the power to do? My ex-husband has a lot of connections in Africa, in Europe, Everywhere, I will say, except in the U.S. So in Europe, I felt protected in the beginning. But when I learned 
the connections that he also had in Europe, you know, I, I didn't feel protected anymore. Were you always looking over your shoulder when you were there? Yes, I was. Because when I got there in Europe, so I served him. Okay. So he would come back and forth. So I will see him, yeah, very often. So he knew where you were. Yes, he knew. He knew where I was. So when you say you started a new proceeding, you literally were starting a new fight to keep your children. How does that work legally? He's the father. They're African-born. He's in Africa. You fled. I'm daunted just listing these things. What, what, what do you have to do now to counter this? So, yeah, I didn't know how to do really, but I was just hoping that, you know, since we, I was in Europe and then uh, maybe starting a new proceeding, maybe that will uh, revert, you know, the procedure. Uh, I mean, the decision that I got from, from Africa. That's what I was hoping, but I didn't know for sure. So what did happen? How did that unfold? Were, were you able to get the decision reversed? Uh, no, I wasn't able to because in international law, it is very difficult. I would say even impossible, you know, to reverse the first decision from that country. But he never did take them back. He did. He did take them back. When? Right away? No, it wasn't right away. So when I started the new uh, proceeding in, Euro uh, in Europe, he would come to see them every year, actually, to see the children. And also when we had to go to court, so he will come to go to court. And then he, uh, so we, we've been doing that for, for years in Europe because the first decision that I got was that uh, since my ex-husband got custody, um, you know, in the first place, that they couldn't reverse the, the first decision. So I made an appeal of that decision, and I even went to the Supreme Court to try to reverse that decision to, to no avail. So after we went through all the proceedings, uh, he was able to, to enforce the decision from Africa to Europe. That meant that because I was living there in Europe, so he had custody as well in Europe. So he was able to take them back to Africa because of that. And he did? He did. Mm -hmm. for, for how long did he have them there? For 10 months. And what led to a change there? So when he took them back to Africa, he got married and uh, his new wife didn't want to see them. He, she didn't want to, to have the, kid, the, the children with, him, with her. And then my ex-husband decided to take them back to Europe for vacation. So when he took them back, I found out that he was abusing them in Africa. And I decided to not let them go with him, even though I didn't have custody. How did that information come to you, that he was abusing the children? Because at that time in Africa, I had um, a nanny taking care of the children there. And I was in contact with her. So she witnessed everything that he was doing to them. And she let me know that. And also when my children went back uh, to see me in Europe, they also told me what was going on. So you said, even though you don't really have, you don't have custody, he has custody. You do not allow him to take them back to Africa. How do you accomplish that? <laughs> That was very challenging, very, very challenging. I had to, uh, to call one of my siblings living there in Europe, and then she came to, to help me. So we took the children to, 
one of her friend's house far away is it was in um in a countryside <laughs> so we hide them the children there so when my ex-husband came to pick them up i told him that you know because he abused them that i wouldn't let him take them back to africa and then we went we went back to the court again and he said that he will p- p- uh, punish me for what i have done and that he will take them back to africa but he didn't he didn't he wasn't able to because i came to the us so that's that's an, the next moment of change now given the new wife not wanting these children in her life do you think he would have taken them back again at that point yes i'm sure because it it wasn't about the children it wasn't even having the children or not having them it was about me it was how to you know destroy my life how to get to me it was all about that it wasn't for the best interest of the children because when i was living in europe he had never ever contributed to to their education to their lives to anything he had never provided for uh, for them so it wasn't about taking care of the children or having the children it was all about how to get to me you describe this period of your life as hell and it sounds like hell not only are you not really safe not only are you fighting for the safety of your children and the ability to take your children and care for them but you're not practicing medicine either is that correct yes i was not practicing medicine and i really missed that you know seeing patients and that was one of the reasons that you know i went to medical school but i couldn't i couldn't practice medicine anymore because I left my country and you know when you practice medicine in one country and then when you move to another country you have to start all over I couldn't I couldn't start all over going back to school and so I tried to find something else to be able to work as um as a physician but not seeing patients I know that that is not unusual I know that maybe even in the best of circumstances it's it sounds like they make it hard countries make it hard on doctors to practice to begin a practice in a new country you have to maybe take your boards again maybe do a residency again in some cases is that fair is that right <laughs> no i um, to me it's not right because medicine is medicine <laughs> that's how i see things it might be different because in africa uh depending on the countries you know we are well versed in infectious disease mm-hmm. diseases maybe but it's the same medicine and i can tell because uh when i left africa to go to europe and now uh you know to amir uh to the us so it's exactly the same it's the same management that we do uh for any single disease so it's it's exactly the same I know you have so many things going on at this moment. Powerful things. You fled your country, you're fighting for your children. Do you have a chance to even make space for the loss or the grieving of the career that you really really wanted and really worked hard for? Do you even have time to have those feelings? No, I didn't even have time for that. <laughs> I just wanted to fight to keep my children. I wanted to fight to provide for them. It was all about that, so I didn't even have time to think about my career. Were you able to find work in Europe that was in any way gratifying or interesting? Yeah, I was able to find work in Europe and it was very gratif- uh, gratifying even though I was unable to to go back to the hospital 
sitting, but it was gratifying. It was still being uh, a physician, but in another, you know, industry. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed my time there. I'm happy to hear that. So how are you able now to get from Europe? It sounds like it has to happen again very quickly. This threat has been rendered by your ex-husband. How do you get them here? How do you get yourself here? Yes, that was a very challenging time as well. Because, you know, I did it once from Africa to Europe. And now I needed to do it again. But the most difficult part for that time was that, you know, I spent years in Europe and I really enjoyed uh, working in the company that I was in with all of my colleagues. You know, it was like my family, really. Mm -hmm. And it was resigning from my job and moving to, to the U.S. without knowing what will be my future and knowing that I didn't speak English, so that will be a big challenge. I knew that, but I didn't think about all of that. The only thing that I wanted to, to do was to protect my children. And the only country where I could go in order for my children to be safe. And that's why I came to the U.S. But it was very challenging to, to leave Europe. But I had, I had to do it. I had to do it for my children. I had the choice to either let them go with their, uh, their dad or resign from everything, you know, from my career and choose my children. And that's what I did. I chose my children. You seem to have this remarkable capacity to know with such clarity what you want and need to do and to not let the things that seem would seem like insurmountable obstacles stop you. You seem unstoppable. I mean, to come to a country where you don't speak the language alone, <laughs> what is the primary force in you? What, what is this sense that you can do it? it, it is it, can you articulate yeah. it? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it is hard to say, but in my mind, it's always, you have to do it. Just go. Don't ask questions. Don't even think that you, you can't do it. Don't even think of that. Just go ahead and do it. That's how I feel. And, and also, you know, never give up. If you can, can do it at first, learn how to do it better. You know, you will always succeed if you do that. Never give up. Do you think that, I don't want to call it anything. I don't want to name it. I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to name it knowing these names are just words. But do you think you developed some confidence or discipline or powerful control over your own mind in that way, vis-a-vis -vis your being steeped in education and going to medical school? Like, was this a muscle in some way that you had this sense of just do it, don't think, just do it? I think what really helped me is, you know, living in Africa, living in very challenging, difficult situations. And Whatever I went through during my residency in the regional, you know, hospital that I had my residency in, I think that's where I really got my, my strength. While that's happening, while you're in the trenches, seeing what you're seeing and being challenged, do you feel yourself changing? Do you feel that strength developing or is it something you have to look back on later and go, oh, okay, oh, oh, look at that. You know, I just got, I just got that skill out of that experience. I think it's, um, it's like a moving target. Mm. It's never ended. Mm. Even now in the U.S., 
you know, there are a lot of challenges. So it's, it's a mindset that I got, I will say from Africa, but you know, it's a life changing experience. It's a life learning experience as well, but you know, it's, and I use that every single day in my life. It's never ended. So talk me through, walk me through landing here in the U.S., getting yourself here to the U.S. Yeah, so when I came here in the U.S., the most difficult part was that I didn't speak the language. So that was a huge barrier. So I went to school to learn to learn the language, but it was very... Uh, frustrating, you know, not be able to express myself. Uh, so I started as um, a housekeeper, housekeeping. So I did housekeeping and home health. And I didn't look at those jobs as being, you know, inferior to what I used to be because, you know, I was a physician. I was, a, uh, I was in a high rank position in Europe. And then I came to the U.S. to become a housekeeper. But I didn't look at that as being, I mean, low. <laughs> I look at that as being uh, very grateful, you know, starting as housekeeper. And then because I knew that I wouldn't say a housekeeper all of my life. It, it was a life lesson for me. How long before you started to feel like I can get to know people and they can get to know me via the language? How long did that take? Uh, so when I, I went to school to learn the language for four months, mm. and then I knew the grammar, I knew how to write and everything, but the most uh, difficult part was to communicate in a way to be understood. So I actually decided I didn't want to spend a year going to school. I really want to be, you know, with people to just exchange with people, you know, doing voluntary, uh, volunteering jobs. And then I started as a housekeeper and home health. And that's really helped me to get to know people and to get to exchange with uh, Americans in order to be able to improve my, my language. How, how long have you been here? And, and what has your experience been of this country? Uh, I've been here for seven uh, years now. And so my experience was that, you know, in Africa, so I dealt with uh, being a woman. And then in Europe, <laughs> I dealt with being uh, black, mm -hmm. a woman and black as well, and coming from Africa. And then in America, I'm dealing with being a foreigner, being from another country and speaking with an accent. Because people will say, oh, there is a lot of racism, people are racist. But really, I haven't experienced that here in the US as much as I've experienced that in Europe. Hmm. Yeah, in Europe, it was way worse than in America. What I like living here in America is that there are a lot of opportunities and people don't look at you saying, oh, she's black, she won't be able to do the job. No, they really look at what you have in what you are cap capable of. That's the most important. What are you bringing on the table for that company? That's the most important. And that's what I like here in the U.S. And yet you face judgment because you're an immigrant, would you say? Yes, I would say that that sometimes the judgment is not even related to my to the fact that I'm black, is related to the fact that I'm an immigrant. Because not only white people, but also black people, African American, they will call me on that because I'm an immigrant. I have an accent. Leonie goes on to tell me about her second job in this country, working as a technician in a medical lab where she encountered something that really surprised her. 
And in that lab, uh, I worked with African-Americans and that was the, the worst experience ever <laughs> because so it was two African-American women and they didn't respect me because, uh, because coming from Africa and they will tell me that they will make fun of me, maybe because of my accent, but also they feel like they, they were superior to African people, you know, because they didn't know anything about Africa. So I had to, to teach them. It was an eye opener. Mm. opening for experience for them. The most difficult part was to, you know, for them to make fun of me, like every time, like every day they will make fun of me. And, but I told them, okay, I'm doing this job from now, but years down the road, I will become a physician, but you will still do the same job. <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> Do you think they shifted at all by meeting you? Do you think their experience of you had any impact on them? Um, yeah, I think so. Because one of them, uh, finally, she really wanted to, you know, to get to know me more. And the fact that, you know, I wasn't from the U.S. And then that I came from Africa, Europe, and then the U.S. So they've feel that that was very interesting and attractive to them to mm. try to learn more about it. And also, you know, I was telling them, why do you want to stay uh, working in a lab in the U.S.? You can be wherever you want to be. Don't just stay in this job saying that I, I cannot go back to school. You can go back to school if you really want to go back to school. So one of them really listened to me and um, she, she went back to school, actually. So I would say that, yeah, I had an impact on, on them. According to an article by Nigerian-born journalist Ohimai Amayize, published in JSTOR Daily, Leone's story reflects the social distance between Africans and African-Americans that dates back to slavery and really took root during the Jim Crow years when, quote, African-Americans were encouraged to shun the idea of a connection to Africa, to think poorly of Africa, and to celebrate traits in themselves which supposedly distanced themselves from Africa. In other words, to think of themselves as more cultured, more Christian, more white, more civilized than Africans, and therefore to look at Africanness as a matter of shame or a kind of taint that needed to be avoided, end quote. The article also highlights the fact that most Black Americans are six to seven generations culturally removed from the African continent, and negative portrayals of Africa in pop culture do nothing to disrupt the stereotypes. On the other hand, negative images of guns, drugs, and violence in African American communities have greatly shaped how African immigrants perceive African Americans. It's a complicated dynamic, surely, one that Leone found herself right up against in that job. I find it perplexing that we forget this whole country is made up of immigrants. None of us here are Native except the Native Americans. How, how has it been for your children? When they arrived here, how old were they? So when they arrived in the U.S., they were 10 and 12 years old. So it was easier for them to adapt, to adjust, to learn the language just to to be part of the country right away. You started, you said, working in home health and as a housekeeper. What are you doing now? So now I'm working as a physician. Yes, so I, I made it from housekeeping, home health to physician. So it's the, the American dream. Yeah, everything is possible in America. Do you have the same feelings of warmth towards your job that you had towards the job in Europe? Do you have friends there? Is it gratifying? It is gratifying. I really like the job that I'm doing. But in America, you know, I'm from a different country, different culture. So I would say it is very difficult to, 
to make friends in, in America. People are really nice, but I think like the, the friendship that you can get is, it is superficial. It is not like the friendship back in Europe that I think like it was more rooted, rooted than compared to the friendship here. I love, I love unpacking this piece of the conversation with you because I think I've had a, a conversation in the same stream with some of my friends just about how how challenging it can be to make new friends in adulthood. And I sort of wonder if we Americans, we sort of are, we have a mythology around she's been my best friend since kindergarten or, you know, I met him in high school or college or we, we look for these bonding experiences with our friends and that's who we tend to like cling to. Even if sometimes we've outgrown the relationship, you know, truly we change. And some of those historical relationships don't necessarily serve either party, but we hold on to them. And I wonder if that's a little bit of what you're bumping up against is our own, first of all, I think it's a bias towards historical, I'm gonna call them historical friendships. And second of all, it's a discomfort with knowing how to make ourselves vulnerable to new people as we age. I don't know if that's not a part of the friendship making process in Europe and Africa, but people get very set in their ways and they don't always know how to change or welcome someone new into the circle or let go of things that aren't representative of who they've become. So it's it's just a really interesting topic of conversation. And I think it's so important though to widen our circle even more as we get older and to so that we keep learning, so that we don't homogenize our relationships. All of our friends look one way or do one thing or have had the similar experiences as opposed to looking for friends who enrich us because they're different. The minute you meet this woman, you know how deep she is. So I asked her if in her seven years in this country, she's been able to form any relationships that are more authentic. I met a very wonderful guy um, in the U.S. And then he, he passed away. But I will always remember him. I will never forget him. He helped me a lot. He was my rock. He was my... He was, he was everything for me. He really helped me going through all the challenges that I've been through when I got to the U.S. He helped me with all the bills, the lawyer's bills and everything. He even sold his house to get a, a small house in order to pay for the bills. He was the most wonderful man that I have ever met in my life. Was he uh, a friend? A romantic connection? Yeah, he was a romantic connection. We even got married and he came down with cancer and he passed away. Oh, Leonie. I'm so sorry. Mm. Thank you. Something about what you just said reminds me of... The moment you got on the plane and the plane had technical issues <laughs> and you weren't sure you'd get out, I wonder if you feel like some force is looking over you and helping you, even though this loss is a big loss, that he came into your life and loved you and gave you so much support mm -hmm. at a time when it must have felt like you wouldn't have been able to do it alone. Do do you feel like there are some angels? Yeah, I really feel like feel that. I really believe in that. And even when I met him, he told me that God had sent him to help me. 
What's life like now for you, day to day? Um, my day to day is is all about working. Mm. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> is that you? Is that American work culture? Is it both? <laughs> oh, it's maybe both. Yeah, it's maybe both. But I really like. I love working mm. because I remember when I was in Europe. Uh, people will tell me, oh, you really, you work as like an American. <laughs> hard and long hours. Yeah, and, hard, yes, obsessively yes, perhaps. And, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and what about your kids? Yeah, they're all about working, education as mm-hmm. well. I think they got that from, from me mm-hmm. uh, since they were little. So they knew that, you know, in order to succeed, you have to be educated. Do they see their father? No, they don't see him. Who has custody now? Legally. Legally, he still has custody. He still has custody. Mm -hmm. Because in the U.S. it was the same thing. So they didn't have jurisdiction on my case. Because Africa has, uh, was the first, you know, to give... um, the custody decision, so because of the international law, so in the U.S. as well, say, so they couldn't do anything about it. Do you ever talk with them? Do they ever talk with you about what you've done for them? Yeah. They talk about it because they knew that I sacrificed a lot for them and they want to make me proud of them. So they really work hard because of that. Now that you're here, are there things that you would like to do that you feel like you can't? Are there still feelings of fear or just worry? Or has that all dissipated? Yeah, I'm not worried anymore. When I moved here at first, uh, seven years ago, I was very worried. Uh, But not anymore because... You know, my kids are old enough and that was the goal. I, w- I really want them to to be old enough, you know, to be able to defend themselves and to be able to decide for themselves. So I think now I'm in a good place of life where I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid of my, my ex-husband anymore. This is maybe a silly question, but as, as you're saying it, I, I just got this sense. Did you wake up one day and realize that? Yes, yeah. I did, really. Wow. I did, and that was when he came. So he came here to take them back, and that was three years ago. He wanted to take them back to Africa because he still had custody of the children so he came because of that and then he was unable to because the my children refused to go back with him did you witness that yes i did i witnessed that and not only me but other people our friends my children told him that they are not objects and that they have rights even though they are children, they can decide for themselves and they refused to go back with him. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And since that time, I haven't heard from him. Do you think something has changed in him? Do you think that experience changed something? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so because he will still, you know, if he... If he's he's able to do something, you know, in order to destroy my life, he will do it. But really, there is nothing that he can do, you know, because now the the children, you know, they are old enough. And there is nothing that he can do in order to reach me or to get to me. What do you miss the most about being here? I miss my family back in Africa, back in Europe and being with friends, uh, that's what I miss the most. You know, we talked before about not really having the time to process 
some of the things that were happening that were secondary to what was primary, which was the safety of you and your children. Have you had some more time in the last couple of years to release or feel the feelings and release them? Like, have you had some time to let all that stuff move through you? Um, I haven't really because I I haven't had the time. <laughs> um, since the beginning, really, when I left Africa to go to Europe and then when I left Europe to come to the to the US, when I look at, you know, everything that happened, I haven't had the chance to just sit back and look, you know, look back at my life. Yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like it's just been a tornado of expectations, you know, that you've had to fulfill. Mm -hmm. Do you see your future here in the US? I, I really like the, the US. I see my future here because now that I came, you know, to live here with my children, so now they are part of this country. So, yeah, I see my future here with with my children. And I believe I, I will stay here, but I don't know yet. <laughs> we'll see down the road. Yeah. I like to end every interview with some rapid fire questions so don't think leone just say the first thing that comes to mind fill in the blank change requires blank change requires adapt adaptability if you could go back in time and change one thing and only one thing about your past what would it be not meeting my ex-husband but I wouldn't say that because if I, if I hadn't met him, I wouldn't have my children. So That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what is one thing, big or small, you would like to see change in the world? Race, colorism, or I don't know, just not seeing color on people, you know, everybody just the same. What is one thing, big or small, you hope never changes? My strength. What is one small or superficial thing about yourself you would like to change? It's hard to not think. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, just, I don't know how to define that, but it's not my culture. I wouldn't say that I want to change my culture. I love my mm -hmm. culture. I love who I am. But just finding the way to be able to be accepted here in the U.S. How often do you change your toothbrush? <laughs> Every two months. <laughs> I know we're all... We all have aspects of each of these, but do you consider yourself primarily a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor? A change maker. What does your next change look like in life? And you can feel free to be imaginative or fantastical or aspirational in your answer. Uh, my next change will be to, to go back to Africa and change women's rights. What would you say to a woman in Africa or elsewhere who feels trapped by something and feels that there's no way out? I would say that there is always a way out and that you have to look for solution. You have to look for help, but there is always a way out. You seem like an incredibly positive person. Thank you. Is that true? That I'm positive? Yeah, that you, you have hope. Yes, that is true. I always have hope. Uh, because without hope, I wouldn't be able to do what I, I have done for my children. I've never asked a guest this, but I'm going to ask you... <laughs> What is your hope in telling your story? 
my hope is that maybe by telling my story, that might help someone, a woman somewhere in any country that it might be, I don't know. But I just remember that when I was in high school, I still remember that reading uh, without my daughter. Mm-hmm. I read that when I was in high school. And I think that book really helped me mm-hmm. when I needed to take a decision to leave the country with my children. I, I still remember, you know, the book. And at that time, you know, when I took the decision to leave the country with my children, I had that book. And I think by reading that book, that really helped me to overcome, you know, whatever I overcome during that time. And I think that by telling my story, that might help someone someday. That's my hope. Do you consider yourself a rebel? I could be sometimes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it's that thing I was asking you about, did you want to push back? And you, you, did, you said, I did push back. And you, you have pushed back against so many things. I feel such an interesting clash with you of this lovely, peaceful, quiet, reflective person and this absolutely fierce rebel who just <laughs> won't back down. And what a powerful combination that is. What a powerful, powerful woman you are. Thank you. I am really, really happy that you were willing to share your story with me. And what I wish for you is a circle of friends that will welcome you with open arms and learn from you and support you when you need it. Because I cannot think of a person who deserves that more. Thank you, Kristen. I hope so. I will be working on it too. Thank you, Leonie. Thank you for your bravery and your honesty and your relentless pursuit of respect. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. You're very welcome. Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.